Uh, Let's find Romans chapter 8, Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read from verse 31, Romans 8 verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've seen in recent weeks, Paul is coming to the end of the the first part of this letter where he's been setting out the wonderful good news of God's love for us in Christ. And he's expounded it, he's explained it, and then he comes to some conclusions here uh, at the end of chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say in response to this? All the, the truth that is set out demands a response, and you can't just hear it and walk away. You've got to got to think it through and come to a response. So he says, what shall we say in response to this? Then he fires out some questions and uh, gives the answers to them. Each question, five questions there. Um, If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, And so on. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? He's absolutely clear about God's love. And he expresses that in verse 38. And these are the words to to particularly home in on this morning. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons and so on. But I just felt before we leave this chapter, we've drawn attention to those words, but I want to particularly home in on them this morning, where Paul expresses certainty. I am convinced through the chapter, he said, I consider, we know that, we know. But now he said, he, he comes to the conclusion expressing total certainty. How absolutely certain can we be about anything? Obviously, we're aware that as time goes on, things that one generation was clear about, another generation is not so sure about. New discoveries come, new, new understanding comes, and the certainties of one age uh, become things that the next age will look back at and laugh at. How absolutely certain can we be about anything? Paul here expresses total certainty. I am convinced, he says. It's a very strong expression. We need to be certain. The problem is that the kind of prevailing climate in society is towards kind of open-mindedness. Open-mindedness, 
Unless, of course, you're a militant atheist, and they are absolutely certain. But apart from militant atheism, uh, no one else is allowed to be certain of anything. We're supposed to be say, well, if that, that's right for you, if that's, if that's what you believe, that's fine for you. But really, to, you, you, if you're absolutely certain, the suspicion is that you are likely to be imposing your mindset on other people. And of course, there's a fear, isn't there, of fundamentalist extremism. The world is gripped with that fear. People are absolutely certain. And we say, wrong. But that absolute certainty becomes scary. And so the prevailing view is we need to respect one another's convictions. We need to respect one another's beliefs. Everyone's got insight into the truth, but no one is absolutely right. What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. Let's respect one another. Let's be tolerant of one another's viewpoints. Certainty can be viewed as bigotry. And bigotry, of course, is the cause of a lot of conflict. And so, the, as I say, the prevailing climate is, let's just be open-minded. Paul here is not being open-minded. He's saying, I am convinced. Now, obviously, we don't want to go for bigotry. We don't want to go for closed minds. It's important to be teachable. But, of course, the very concept of being teachable implies someone is teaching. And in order to teach, you've got to be clear on what you're saying. So, the very, of course, we want to be open to being taught, but that implies, of course, there is something we need to learn. We're not going to be, have closed minds on just about everything. There are things we need to be certain about, but also later on in this letter, in chapter 14... Verse 1, Paul says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. There are some things where there are different opinions. That's fine. He talks about people who have got scruples about what they eat and what they, they shouldn't eat one day holier than another. Well, okay, let's not pass judgment on disputable matters. But Paul is not so open-minded that he says, well, anything goes. No, he says, I am convinced. We do need convictions. Writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks about coming to maturity, and he says in Ephesians 4 verse 14, he says, no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Blown here and there by every wind of teaching. They're people who haven't got any certainties. People who haven't got any convictions. They're open to the latest thing. And nowadays, of course, with access to so much information from around the world, instant access to things on YouTube or whatever, we see what's happening in different places and we can just be blown about by it all. See what's happening there. Seems very successful. Have you heard what he says? Maybe heard, and so many ideas out there. And so it's possible to be tossed back and forth, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. No, Paul says we need to grow up. We need to come to a place of maturity. If we're blown about, it means we've got no roots, got no certainties. Paul has got some certainties. I am convinced, he says. 
back in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, Joshua at the end of his life, addressing the nation that he has led in the latter years of his life. And he is aware that these people are liable to be led astray by other influences. And he says in Joshua 24 and verse 14, Fear the Lord, serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He has some convictions. And he's saying to the people, now come on, it's make your mind up time. Who are you serving? Choose today for yourselves whom you will serve. The prophet Elijah said something similar as he challenged the godlessness of the nation at his time, the false religions and so on. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, he confronts the the prophets uh, of Baal and uh, he says to the people, 1 Kings 18, 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Can't make their minds up. Who are they going to follow? They're going with the prevailing wind, and they're being challenged about that. And in fact, in the second book of Kings, you read something that to me is really quite terrible. In Second Kings chapter 17, God's judgment has come on the northern kingdom. You probably know the story. The northern kingdom has gone into exile. Uh, the whole territory of Samaria then, the people have gone. And uh, the Assyrians have then relocated other people into the northern kingdom. And they've come with their gods. But they've come into the land of Israel, bringing their heathen worship. And they face judgment. And so the king of Assyria, then slightly enlightened, thinks, well, there's something wrong here. So he sends people back to teach them the ways of God. And we read in 2 Kings uh, 17... And uh, verse 41, or verse 40. So they're being taught about the ways of God. The priests have come to teach them. And it says, but the people, they would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. And then this, even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they were serving their idols. Even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they're serving their idols. So they're hearing about God, And they appear to be responding. They appear to be worshipping the Lord. They've got a kind of religious veneer. But under it, nothing's changed. They've still got their old belief systems. Oh, what a terrible picture. Even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they're serving other gods. Hey, could that happen today? Could that happen in churches even while people are serving the Lord, 
their hearts haven't changed. Still got their traditional beliefs. They're still the same as the nations around. There's a veneer. Well, that's how it was then. In the New Testament, James speaks of the double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Can't make his mind up. Veneer of faith, but underneath it, there's prevailing doubt. James says, don't think you're going to receive anything from God, because there's no conviction. Need to make up our minds Being certain, being convinced means much more than kind of nodding in agreement when someone's preaching. It means more than taking notes. <laughs> means more than hearing. It means something getting into you where you are totally convinced. It's certainly much more than being emotionally stirred. That's why we have the tragedy of apparent conversions. People who respond, and we see something clearly happening. They're, they're clearly experiencing something. They're feeling something. And then it doesn't last. And we have to ask ourselves, what went wrong? Well, they're stirred, but not changed. Years ago, I read uh, a rather cynical a uh, philosopher who spoke about religious people experiencing what he called a fif f i f for the note takers experiencing a fif have you ever had a fif well a fif is a funny internal feeling And he said, that's what a lot of people go for. They want a funny internal feeling. The problem is, of course, that a funny internal feeling could just be indigestion or anything. And people want a feeling. And if you've got a feeling, something happened. But feelings don't last. And you can't share a feeling with anyone else. You can only hope they get one, but you can't share it. You can share truth, oh yeah, but feelings, feelings come and go. If your religion, if your Christianity is all about feelings, you're vulnerable, very vulnerable. Where's your Christianity when you get depressed? Where's your Christianity when you're afraid? Feelings can be of all different kinds. Paul isn't, of course he, he's got feelings, but he's not talking about it there. He's talking about conviction. He's talking about certainty. One of the most scary examples of just emotion you find in the gospel, in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Matthew speaks about a day of great excitement. Matthew 21, verse 8 Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked. Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, 
the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, just get the picture there. A whole city stirred, and people telling one another what's going on. Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, this is the Messiah. This is the promised son of David, and we've seen him. And you can imagine the buzz. Wouldn't we be thrilled if the whole city of Sheffield was stirred like Jerusalem was on that day. It's an amazing day. They'd have been excited as they went to bed and as they got up the next day because of what they'd seen. High emotion and excitement. But of course, we know the tragic sequel. Matthew 27 and verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Pilate says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. What crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, crucify him. High emotion. Hosanna to the son of David. And what shall I do to the son of David? Crucify him. Conviction? A lot of excitement, but not convinced. Not convinced. It's all on the level of just emotion, froth. But what's got into them? What, what, what do they really believe? Well, their beliefs haven't been changed. Paul here has reasoned something through. And he says, I'm convinced. He's got some convictions. We need the truth to change us. We need it to get into us so we really believe it. And the way Paul says it here in Romans chapter 8, the, the tense of the verb that is translated just as, I am convinced. It could be, I have become convinced. I have become persuaded. He's got a a, a mindset, a mind won over by rational argument. He's heard things, he's added it up, he's investigated it, and he's come to some settled conclusions. I have become convinced, he says, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, how had he become convinced? Well, obviously by the Scriptures. And as we've gone through the Romans in these early chapters, we see how often he quotes the Scriptures. It starts back in chapter 1 when he makes that declaration. Chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not some strange new thing he's just got hold of, a momentary enthusiasm. He's heard about Jesus. Initially, he'd resisted. Now he's become persuaded. Why? Because he searched the Scriptures. He said, it's there, promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning God's Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. The crowd said, the Son of David. But it was just excitement. Paul is saying he's the son of David because he's seen it in the Scripture. He's convinced. It's not just excitement. 
He's studied it. He's seen it. Oh, yes, it makes sense. Study the story through from Genesis all the way through. It's all about Jesus. He's convinced. And so in chapter 3 of Romans, where he's setting out something that is quite new in his day, verse 21, he says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. This brand new revelation. Oh, no, it's not brand new. To which the law and the prophets testify. How does he know that? He's studied it. Seen it. Oh, yes, the law. It's all pointing forward to something. It's a shadow of something to come. The prophets speak about that, the one who is to come. It's all there. This is not some new enthusiasm. It's not a funny internal feeling. It's truth. He's worked it out. He's followed it through. If we want certainty, we need to read the Bible. Certainty comes from the Scriptures, what the Bible tells us about Christ, what it tells us about His life, what it tells us about His death, what it tells us about His wonderful resurrection, what it tells us about His ascension to heaven, where He is now, what He's doing now, what He will do, that He's coming back. We've seen what the Scripture says, and we're not just dipping in here and there to favorite bits, we're seeing the whole thing. See what the Old Testament says about Jesus. See what the prophets said about him. We're convinced. Need to see about the grace expressed in Christ. Understand what grace means. To see a massive plan being worked out. You think, hey, from beginning to end, it fits together. It's one great story. And we see the intended goal, where the whole thing is heading, where all the universe is heading, what is destined to happen. We're convinced. We, we get it from the Scripture. We see what the Bible tells us about God. God's covenant love. See, the covenant love expressed towards Israel, the covenant love expressed to us in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says, I am convinced. Why? Because he's understood it seen it in the scripture God's total sovereignty hey it takes time to get convinced of that because we're so full of ourselves aren't we so full of our choices our freedom free will we talk about it's God's sovereign well what about my choices if God is sovereign what about me who's really in charge it takes time to humble ourselves and to say, he's the king. Paul's seen it. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Why? Because he's in charge. God is for us. Who can be against us? He's sovereign. Reigns over everything. All of the universe is created by him and is answerable to him. And he just has to snap his fingers and things change. He's God. Therefore, if he is for us, he's understood it, you see. What the Bible says about Christ, what the Bible says about God. He's got the Scripture, but not just the Scripture, also the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Here in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, he's already said, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. We've got words, and we can read those words, and we can get hold of them. But it's not all from the outside coming in. We've also got the Spirit who inspired these words filling us. 
if we're filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit himself, the Spirit is person, not just an influence, not just a power. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. So we're reading the Scripture, and we've got this inner voice saying, it's true, it's true. He he testifies. That's the the role of the Spirit, as Jesus spoke about the Spirit speaking to his disciples, that he himself was going to leave them, but he wasn't going to leave them on his own because another one like him was going to come, the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 15 and verse 26, he says, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. You also must testify. The Spirit speaks to us, witnesses to us, confronts us, testifies to us about Jesus. That's how we know. Read the words. And the Spirit also agrees. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says about the Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what's yet to come. He will bring glory to me, Jesus says, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That's how we're convinced. Paul's convinced. Hasn't just got a few theories. Hasn't got a few disconnected ideas. He's convinced. He's certain. Why? Because of the Scripture and because of the Spirit. The Spirit agreeing, the Spirit convincing, the Spirit leading into truth because He is the Spirit of truth. He's not the Spirit of funny internal feelings. He's the Spirit of truth who testifies about the truth and leads us into truth. So we know the truth and we're certain we are convinced. The Spirit convicts of truth. He convinces of truth. He glorifies Christ. He pours out the Father's love into our heart. So there are rational grounds for certainty. Rational grounds for being convinced. To know that we know God. And to know that the God that we know is real. And that he is the only God. And that there is only one way to him. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't listen to the random ideas that we will hear uh, through TV or through the internet or whatever. We're not, we're not blown about. We know because of the Scripture and because of the Spirit. Well, how, what, that's, there's evidence for certainty. What is the evidence of certainty? What are the marks of someone who is convinced What difference does it make to be convinced? Paul says, I am convinced, and I guess his whole lifestyle indicates this is a man with convictions. Because the first sign, surely, of someone who is convinced is that it actually transforms their life. In Romans chapter 12, Paul starts to deliberately apply all that he has taught in the preceding 11 chapters, and he says in verse 2 of Romans 12, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are two ways, he's saying there, to be changed. One, One way to be changed is to be conformed. 
That's external pressure shaping you. The problem is, of course, you know, you can come to a church like this and you can be amongst us for some time and the kind of prevailing attitudes here will conform you perhaps. You might argue back on a few things, but basically you fit in with the crowd and there's the prevailing beliefs about certain things and you're conformed by it. And then in the process of time, you move away from Sheffield and you find another church and lo and behold, you change. Because actually there weren't any convictions, you were just being conformed. No, Paul says, don't be conformed, be transformed. And that's real. That's change from the inside out. And how are we transformed? By the renewing of your mind. By getting convinced. By having convictions. How we live shows what we believe. So I was thinking about this this week. I thought, so, I'm going to stand up here and make statements like that. Then I have to ask myself, what does my lifestyle show about what I believe? And that's an uncomfortable question. I'll lob it at you. What does your lifestyle show about what you believe? If people just looked at you, observed how you live day every day, what would they conclude about your belief system? What would they conclude about the values that shape your life? What would people conclude about the values that shape mine? How we live demonstrates what our convictions are. Paul says something quite amazing or pretty provocative in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 17, he's writing to his friends in Corinth, and he says he can't himself come, but he's sending his young friend Timothy. And he says, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere. My way of life agrees with what I teach. Paul's convinced. And his convictions shape his life. So you can look at his lifestyle and you see what he believes, as is true for everyone. How we live demonstrates what we really believe. So important to, to be convinced of things. You know, as, as you come to a church like this, can I tell you, the, the, the things that I would teach, the things that I'd want to see in the lifestyle of the church are not just preferences, and if they're preferences, well, then they're debatable. We can go one way or the other. But we are this kind of church because of some convictions. We're not in a denomination somewhere. We're not in some traditional setup because we've got some convictions. We're not just reacting against things that we don't like. It's we've seen things in the Bible. It's what the Bible says. We're convinced of it. We're not just saying, well, this is our preference. We're saying, what does God say? We are what, who we are and we do what we do because of convictions, not just because of preferences that could change next year. And Paul says, I am convinced. We need to see what the Bible says and then our life is transformed and our value system will change. Our priorities will change. Why? We will become holy people if we're convinced. But if we're not convinced, we'll be like those people back in 2 Kings 17, was it, who worshipped the Lord, 
but still keep their idols. Yeah, we go through the motions. We sing the songs. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, I love that hymn. doesn't change my life. What do the words say? Demands my soul, my life, my all. Is that happening? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost, do we? Poor contempt on all my pride. Really? Or do we just like the words? Worshipping? Not changed. That was true of the people in Samaria. And from what we read in the New Testament, it's been true in churches, even in the early days, and it's certainly true now. If we are convinced, if we're certain of who God is, who Jesus is, God's great purpose, hey, it changes us. It changes our entire value system. A transformed life. Faith. Remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 4? Can you remember that far back? Romans 4, he's looking at one of the great heroes of faith from the Old Testament, Abraham. And in chapter 4, verse 21, or verse 20, it says, Abraham didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Fully persuaded. Abraham, he did some crazy things, we would say. Believing God for a son when he's a geriatric when his wife is seriously old, it's impossible to have children. He's believing for a son. It's crazy. No, he's fully persuaded. He's convinced. And what is he convinced of? That God has power to do what he's promised. He's convinced about God. He's convinced about who God is. And he's convinced of the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over the human body. God is sovereign over everything. So Sarah has passed the change of life. It's impossible for her to have children. They are both of them seriously old, but God's sovereign. He's fully persuaded. He's not believing in belief. He's believing in God. He's got hold of some truth. And when you believe God, then... Faith is no longer something you kind of struggle with. It's not faith in faith. It's God. God is faithful. God is sovereign. And that changes your view of the future. It changes your view of what's possible. Because with God, nothing is impossible. You believe him fully persuaded that God is totally reliable. And that means you're unshakable when the problems come. That's what Paul is speaking about here, isn't he, in Romans chapter 8, of all the, the things that can go wrong. And he talks about physical things, he talks about spiritual things, death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, powers... When, we're sh when events come that 
that undermine all that we've been trusting in, hoping for or whatever, when suddenly we're made redundant, when suddenly there's terrifying news about a health situation or whatever, when those things hit us, then what we're convinced about is so, so important. Because if we're just relying on feelings, hey, they'll be all over the place. And if, if we're relying on feelings and our feelings are all over the place, we'll be all over the place. But no, if we've got some convictions, oh yeah, our emotions are all over the place, but we know, we know if God is for us, who can be against us? Unshakable when the, when the storms come, as they will. But God is faithful, convinced by God's love. Nothing will be able to separate us. Nothing. Remember Paul, the man, flogged, shipwrecked, deserted by his friends. We've seen the story. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Everything else can go. But God, I'm convinced. Absolutely convinced. We're not looking for further proof, therefore. We're not looking for evidence that God loves us. We're not looking at what happens day by day for, for God to prove his love. He's demonstrated his love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What further proof do we want? We're convinced, fully persuaded. God loved me, took my sin. Jesus died in my place. I'm convinced. I see him there suffering where I deserve to suffer. He did that for me. I'm convinced. If everything goes wrong, I'm convinced. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul, right towards the end of his life, writing to his young friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Uh, he speaks about the things that have, have been happening. He's a prisoner. He said, don't be ashamed of me. God's prisoner. And then in verse 12, he says, that's why I'm suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced, is that word again, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Actually, that's a difficult verse to translate. It could be translated in more than one way. A literal translation would be, I'm convinced he's able to guard my deposit for that day. It could be what I have entrusted to him. Equally, it could be what he has entrusted to me. What he's deposited in me, I know he's going to look after it. He's never going to take it away. He's given me eternal life. And I've got that forever. I'm convinced. I'm not blown about, he says, by these sufferings because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced he's able. He's able. Convinced about God. Not looking for further proof. And if we're convinced, that then leads to action. And of course, that's what Paul's life demonstrates, doesn't it? He's got some convictions that cause him to write this letter to Rome because he wants to go to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel in Rome. He wants to preach the gospel anywhere where the gospel isn't already known. He's got some convictions and it shaped his life and it leads to mission. Can't keep quiet about it. If we've got some feelings, some emotions, 
Well, when we go to work and we're in a different environment, suddenly we don't feel the way we felt when we're amongst God's people, so really there's nothing to say. But if we've got some convictions, it shapes us and can't keep quiet about it because we're convinced. We really believe this. I remember shortly after, well, I think a few months after I first came to Sheffield, the, the church that we're in before this one, some of us, And uh, I'd been preaching, I think it was through Ephesians at that time, and I remember someone, after a few months, said to me, you really believe this stuff, don't you? (laughs) I thought, what discernment? We're convinced. Got some convictions. It's not just some text from the Scripture. It changes your life, and so you you talk about it. it. You can't keep quiet about it. Paul says, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's something he believes. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So, well, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Hey, if you believe this, leads to action. You can't keep quiet about it. If you believe in the fear of God, if you believe that everyone must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, if you really believe it, it must lead to some action, mustn't it? If you don't really believe it, if you know it's there in the Bible, it's just one of those uncomfortable things, but hey, let's move on to something more pleasant, it's not going to change you. But hey, if you believe it, if you believe it that the people you work with, if you believe it that the people who live around you, one day will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, you can't be indifferent to that. Paul says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Leads to action. If these things are true, If there's only one way to be saved, people must be told. If we're certain, there will be evidence of the certainty. A transformed life. Belief in God. We we have faith for the impossible. We're unshaken when things go seriously wrong. And we just want to tell people about Jesus. Because we're convinced. Now how I live... And how you live demonstrates what you really believe, what I really believe. So I'm asking myself, how convinced am I really? Have I become perhaps just kind of familiar with truths? That I kind of love those truths. But it's almost like I've been immunized. I've got familiar with them. and They don't impact me. Or am I convinced by it? Have you, do you just love the words? You look for the feelings. Or do those words change you? You're sure of it. Or maybe you've only got random disconnected truths. And the challenge is, hey, start reading this book. Start reading it. Put the pieces together. See how they fit. See how there's a watertight case. Allow the Spirit of God to testify in your spirit. This is true. 
Let him lead you into the truth. So you're a person with real convictions that you can say with the Apostle Paul, I am convinced. I have become convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that just, are they just nice words or your conviction? It's time to get back to the scripture. Time to become more reliant on the Spirit of God to lead us into truth, to do what it says, to say we want to be people who have convictions that we must share. Can't keep it to ourselves because it's true. Let's pray.